Welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast on all things related to human resources in veterinary medicine. Join me, Katie Ardeline, and my colleague, Mike Pownell, as we discuss how to support and take care of the people who are instrumental in making your business a success. Great businesses share one common feature. They focus on taking care of their employees. They create businesses where everyone feels empowered and motivated to be the best they can be. These businesses want highly engaged employees and they do whatever it takes to make this happen because they know that highly engaged employees lead to more growth, client loyalty, and profitability. Veterinary medicine is a challenging profession, but it can be made so much easier if we build business cultures that attract and retain the best people. Subscribe to Hire the Smile for great discussions on taking care of the people that make us all better. Hi, and welcome to Hire the Smile, the HR podcast from Oculus Insights about all things human resources in the veterinary profession. And as always, I am joined by Katie Arline. Hi, Katie. How are you? Michael, I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I am doing fantastic, actually. Glorious. I'm just sort of previewing when we get to our win and fails. When I get to my win, you'll understand why I'm doing well. Mm, Okay. So, yeah, I have nothing to complain about. For once. We can talk about the weather, but I, you know what? <laughs> I'd rather talk about subject for this one is we meet with a lot of our clients and you just have to look around the vet field and everybody is short staffed. I mean, you try to hire a vet. I mean, there's probably 50 practices looking for a vet for every vet that's available. Staff are leaving practices. And we talked a little bit about that of why in the last podcast. Yet at the same time, demand for vet services, even as we're coming out of COVID, remains really high. Mm-hmm. So what can a practice do to keep their team in place amidst all this pressure? You know, you and I have been talking for years when we talk to vet practices about it's better to keep the great team you have by taking care of them than having to always find new staff members. It's very similar to clients in your practice. Mm-hmm. Better to have the loyal clients that you have now than you're always returning clients because people get upset with you and leave you as a business and then you're always trying to find new clients. So how do we keep the grass greener on our side of the fence so people aren't straying? So mm-hmm. I thought that's what we could talk about this week. Let's do it. What do you think uh, are sort of the components that go into making work environment attractive to staff? I think there's a lot, but if I was really going to focus it, um, thinking about it is, hey, yes, compensation, let's make sure we're compensating people well enough, mm-hmm. number one, obvious. And you know, I think two podcasts ago, we talked about that. Yep. Uh, number two, great culture. You're in a place where you can grow, you can develop as a person, you like who you work with, there's not a toxic work environment, you feel supported. That's a broad one, but you know, having a great culture. Yeah leadership and or management. And so what is that HR saying, which you would know? People don't leave because they hate their job. They leave because they don't like their manager. So Mm -hmm. having good management, good leadership. And then I think the other two would just be workload. Yeah. Just how intense is the work? This is one I would not have brought up a year ago. Uh, Yeah. But I think now I'm bringing it up and that is just clients and I don't know, just since COVID, the clients, their expectations is just getting harder and harder. Mm-hmm. Have I missed anything, do you think? No, I think you pretty much nailed it. And I think they're so everything's so interrelated as well. 
Oh, totally. But, you know, that thought about the workload and particularly clients, it's not really something that we've spent a ton of time on. But I think every vet practice we're talking to, or a lot of the folks that we work with are saying, I just, you know, I'm growing like 30% since last year, and I have the same amount of staff, and I don't know what to do. And so trying to help them, it's not like you want to turn everybody away. But still, I think looking at your sort of how you deal with clients and how you manage your workload are two things that are huge factors in the burnout. Yeah, let's focus on that because I think those are two areas that we probably wouldn't have talked about pre-COVID. No. Per se. But I think these are COVID-related challenges or maybe they were just sort of hidden before. Let's talk about workload first. Okay. And so, as we said, every vet practice that you talk to is just, we're, we're busy as all heck. Yet, uh, whether it's curbside pickup, whether it's just the demand, you know, you hear stories of people trying to send animals to an emerged clinic and it's like, you have a three-week wait for mm-hmm. a specialist. It, it's sort of like boom time. It's like we, you know, Beverly Hillbillers, we struck oil and it's amazing. And I think as business owners, and I'm, I'm talking about myself, and I'm actually, you know, a lot of this discussion is coming out of my own self-reflection as a business owner of a veterinary practice. Uh, we love to grow and just like, you know, we're entrepreneurs and it's sort of a validation of what you're doing is working when you see that, yay, we're growing, we're growing. But I think we have hit a point about a year ago, uh, probably about April, May last year, when all of a sudden the vet industry just took off and everybody was staying at home and buying pets is that I think we have far exceeded our ability to accommodate the demand mm-hmm. because most of us are doing or, you know, 20, whether it's 30% more business with the same amount of people. Yep. And I don't think we can handle it anymore. What do you think? No, I agree with you. Absolutely. Especially, you know, after the year of COVID that we've had, and there's so many articles out there recently about people attrition from jobs where people are like, I'm like re-looking at my priorities in my life and I don't want to work as much. So you sort of risk losing staff, uh, DBM staff, as well as support staff who are like, heck, I, I survived this long. And, you know, maybe I don't need the income and something else is more of a priority. So it's, it's more difficult, right? I mean, you've got more business, and you maybe have more people thinking about leaving. So yeah. the idea of trying to make the grass greener is just such a timely topic for sure. And I think the difference with this in vet professions is, is so, you know, one of the things is we do our employee engagement survey and we talk to practices and one of the questions is, is do you think, I'm paraphrasing it, do you think what you do offers value? Is it good for the community, for others? And I think no matter how low a score a vet practice gets, mm-hmm. I think that question always answers positively, really high. Yes. Which makes sense because no matter how miserable a place you're at, you're taking care of animals and this is why we're in it. And so no matter what, you know, we're helping animals get better. You know, so I think we're into it and I think our tolerance for harder work is probably higher than most other professions because you could be working in some other profession. I don't want to pick on anybody. But when you get a chance to help ill animals, yeah, you're going to do a little bit more. But I think we have hit the threshold. So like people are leaving restaurant jobs because they're like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think they're doing more and more just because that's who we are. We're in healthcare. We like to care for people and things. And so I think the obvious thing, you know, you hear about is like, well, can I pay my staff more? What kind of uh, benefits can I give them? What kind of rewards? So let's do every Thursday, we'll bring in lunch for them or whatever. So 
it doesn't seem to be working. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about why not? I think because you can have a full stomach and still be overwhelmed. <laughs> you know, whether you get a free lunch or not, or, you know, pizza comes in or whatever, it, it's a nice thing, but it's not alleviating the problem, which is the workload and too many demands and not enough time. And in fact, people might resent taking that hour to eat, you know, if that's not something that you sort of do on a regular right. basis. Uh, so it could be more stressful, but it's sort of, you know, as an employee, I could kind of see it from the perspective of you're kind of taking the easy way out. Like, I appreciate that you appreciate us, but this isn't doing anything for me. This isn't solving my problem. So, you know, I think people would be like, keep your, keep your pizza lunch. I need more help over here, or we need, you know, less work to do. Yeah. And I think that's what I've come to the realization is, is that we need time. The one thing we don't have, and we have been running on we're on fumes right now and we have been working so hard over the last 15 16 months whatever it is and i think what people want is time and a less frenzied work environment mm-hmm. we talked to a number of practices and they're saying we're up 30 percent, but yet nobody's doing overtime or everybody you know we're still we're not open later and i think that's a common refrain which means okay you're doing 30 percent more in what you did before with the same amount of people and if you're doing curbside pickup, it's actually probably a little harder. Mm-hmm. Like that's a big ask. And I think, you know, we can do a lot for short periods of time. And I think if the pandemic had ended, let's say six months ago, we didn't have a third wave or a second wave or fourth wave, wherever you are, you know, <laughs> let's say by January, we were out of this. I think, all right, maybe we're not as frenzied, but it's just, I don't think anybody has time to think. And I think what a lot of people are probably worried about is that, we're not offering good care. Right. We're just scrambling. Yeah. I know practices where they're struggling to get their medical records in. And nobody feels good about that. Right. Like, I'm just trying to see the patients. And at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't have it in me to write up all the records now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, every, you know, something that might have been a minor annoyance a year and a half ago is like a crushing weight now. Yeah. You know, after the yeah. last year and a half, for sure. Yeah. You know, when I start thinking about this as, as a business owner and I did some sort of, you know, reviews and just sort of looked at some business journals and what have you, and nobody ever talks about constraining growth. And so mm-hmm. all you hear about are, you know, we hear in the news and all these tech companies talking about Facebook's growth is off the chart and YouTube is growing or whatever, whatever. And it's like, yeah, but those are all on platforms. Or in the past, it was in a factory. Let's say one of the car companies had a lot of growth, whatever. It's like at that time, there were more people in the workforce that you can train to do the job. But what we do is pretty specialized, and they're not making a lot of vets anymore. And there's not a lot of people trained as animal care technicians, technicians, what have you. Mm-hmm. I really think a business needs to seriously think. This is almost heresy. You know, people are going to be like, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. I think we need to shrink our businesses to almost a pre-COVID level or at most maybe 7 to 10% more than what you were doing. So if last, let's, and we're recording this in July. So if July 2019, you had this, you know, tens of thousands of dollars or euros or what have you in revenue, add that 10% and go, that's where we need to be now. Mm-hmm. Unless you are in that position where you're able to bring on more people. And if you are good for you, but most people are not. And I think we got to purposely shrink. So have I stunned you into silence? Or? 
No, I agree with you. And I think, you know, that idea of, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, firing crappy clients, it's always something that's sort of in the back of your mind. And it might be two or three a year where you're like, we just can't go any further with this person. But I think our tolerance for bad behavior from clients is really, really lessened in the last year and a half. And, you know, I, there's a certain line of empathy that you have for people, you know, they're more stressed, et cetera, et cetera. And you could, you know, maybe forgive if they snapped at you and they said, oh my gosh, that it wasn't about you. I'm so sorry. But there are those people who have been, uh, pardon my French, an asshole the whole time. So looking at, uh, and it's not just that factor, it could be, there are a number of different reasons why you might want to let go of a client and ways that clients can transgress. Uh, so, but Kay, before we, before we get to the getting rid of clients, there's, I think one of the things I just want to finish on this section though, sure. is that I know when I talk to people, they're like, well, this vet practice closed in the area mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. people are calling up and I just, you know, the demand is high. And I think what we need to is that's not our problem as vet practices. Just yeah. because the demand is there doesn't mean we need to partake in it. Yeah. And, you know, as I sort of think, you know, that why don't we just focus on the great clients that we have? We're always like, oh yeah, great new clients. Let's take them on. Let's take them on. And I, I know we've had a lot of discussions in my own practice about that mm-hmm. of, you know, hey, the opportunity is there. But I'm just like, well, when our existing clients, clients that have been with us for five, 10, 15 years, and they're having to wait three to four weeks. Yeah. When in the past they were, they maybe waited a week. I was like, we're doing something wrong. Totally. Yeah. I think we got to find that system to, A, as you brought up, getting rid of clients, but also identify the kind of clients you may want to bring on. But Mm -hmm. I I think we have to get out of this just because they're calling, we have to accept them. Yeah. And I think we can say, no, we're we're not taking on new clients or we're busy or we'll put you on a waiting list or something. Because Yeah. And I think this is kind of one of those areas where we're stepping into self-care, employee care where for so long, it's been like, take anybody. And like you talk, we were talking about before, we just want to help as vet professionals, you know, as a DBMs or a support staff, we really want to help. So to turn somebody down who needs us, it's excruciating, but mm-hmm. you just can't, you can't be there for everybody, especially if it's at the expense of your mental health or your existing clients or patient care in general. Because right now I feel like a lot of practices are, it's like I've gone to the buffet and I'm just like, yeah. oh my God, I've <laughs> got to get my money's worth. I'm going for it. Yeah. And it feels great for the first half hour and the last half hour is like you want to just like, this is the worst feeling in the world. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah. A lot of regrets. <laughs> yeah. The buffet. So if you want to talk about regrets, it's like, so you're at a bar and you have that one last drink you shouldn't have had. And then it's like, I was good up until the fifth double scotches and then it's like oh then then everything just got horrible yeah and i think a lot of practices are in that everything has just gotten horrible and the room is spinning and i just want to stop yeah absolutely so let's talk about getting rid of clients Uh, because i think this is where you know there's the saying no to new ones and we'll talk about a system of acquiring the right kind of new ones for you but i think a lot of it is there's a lot of trashy clients and what an opportunity to say yeah, we don't need you anymore. You're mm-hmm. somebody else's problem. So talk to us about that. So uh, we pulled, we didn't actually have a ton of articles for this week because we thought we could just talk forever uh, just among ourselves. But one that I did 
pull out. It's called The Customer is Not Always Right. Here are five reasons why. It's out of Forbes. It's by a guy called Kumar Arora. And I thought it was interesting. It sort of sparked, you know, got my wheels turning a little bit about how this is applicable to the vet industry for some of them. But I thought it was kind of a nice overview. And in general, that adage, the customer is always right. We know that's been around forever. Definitely, you know, when I first started working in like food service when I was 14, you pretty much did what they told you to do and you just took whatever they gave you and that's the end of it. But obviously, we want to make sure that we are uh, focusing on the customers that are good customers and trying to protect our staff, then we have to be a little more judicious about what we're doing. So here are some reasons why the customer is not always right. Uh, the first one I love is sometimes actually they're wrong <laughs> and they made a mistake. It wasn't you and your practice that made a mistake. This is always a pickle because I remember from my CSR days, my customer service rep days, where you have a note that you wrote down or you confirm something in an email and then the client says something different or you know you know that they've made a mistake it's it can be a sticky situation because you know you don't want to insult them or get in a big battle about it with them but you can't just be taking ownership for mistakes that aren't yours i thought this is really applicable to the vet industry because so often you know clients complain and they want a discount on their bill and for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, we have that client is always right drilled into us, or we just feel bad, or we don't like getting into confrontation, we'll be like, okay, well, we'll, you know, in an ambulatory practice, we'll, you know, discount the call fee, or we'll discount your exam, or whatever the case is. And that just opens you up. Then the next time they're like, well, I just have to complain about something and I get money off. So that's a slippery slope for sure. And, you know, in vet med as well, sometimes people don't want to pay if they didn't like the outcome, whether it's small email or I'll see it a lot in equine where you've got a lame horse and you sort of lay out the options for how we can diagnose this. And a couple of the suggestions that you give them, they don't want to pay for or whatever. And so you can't get to the bottom of what's wrong. And they're like, well, you didn't find out what was wrong with my horse, so I don't want to pay for this. Uh, and that's so frustrating. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I'm just I'm still captivated by your wordsmithing of as somebody else's problems you don't have to own, and I think that's 100 percent right. And it's just been this mantra of customer is always right has drilled into us, and yeah, they t people take advantage. I think totally. uh, people really do take advantage of the situation, and I think people know that if I scream loud enough or stomp my foot enough, um, I'll get what I want. And I, I know as a practice owner is like, well, let me speak to the boss. Let me speak yeah. to Mike. Yeah. And then they're really pissed when I'm like, no, yeah. no, we're not giving you a break. No, we tried exactly. to. And then they're affronted, like, but because you can hear in the back of the mind, but I'm a good customer. You should mm. be acquiescing to me. You should be giving in to me. Everybody thinks they're a good customer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. uh, and I mean, there are lots and lots of good customers. I'm not trying to dump on everybody at all. But, um, you know, another, you know, discounting, if you get into that game, I mean, discounting is expensive. Totally. And also, you know, you don't want to send a message to your doctors that your work is easily discountable. Uh, and it kind of tells them their time's not valuable or what they did isn't valuable. So I would say a lot of the time, something that can help with this is making sure you're documenting everything. And I definitely do this with certain people that uh, we work with, where if you've agreed on something, you send an email right away and say, this is what we agreed on so that you mm -hmm. have it in writing because it's impossible to go back unless you do, because it's always going to be, he said, she said. And yeah. even if you are totally 
100% swear on your grandmother's life that you're right. You don't have a way to prove it. So documentation yep. is like it, it's such a huge thing. But at the same time, we don't want to get into this gotcha mentality. True. Yep. And I think this is what we have to be clear too, is when we're talking about firing customers, we're probably talking about like a small percentage, maybe 5%, 3% of your practice. I mean, it's like 80% of them are outstanding, you know, probably 10 to 15% are pretty good. And then, but there's the ones that, you know, when they call and you see their, their name in the appointment book, everybody in the practice groans and they think, what next? Yeah. Well, and those people take up all the time. I mean, it's no different than like a problem employee that we've talked about where you spend 95% of your time worrying about 5% of the people. It's just such a waste of time and you can't get good things done for good people in that context. Yeah. And so I think this keeps on coming back to what can we do for the great clients that we have Mm -hmm. and focus on those. Absolutely. Uh, Okay. So second reason Customers always write attitude obviously can have a negative impact on the morale of your staff. And you mentioned it before where you have somebody who's unhappy and they want to talk to the boss. And if the boss is holding the line and everybody understands like, oh, I'm going to send it over to Mike and he's going to, I know he's going to back me up, then it's not a problem. But if you send it over to Mike and Mike acquiesces because the client is like sweet as sugar to Mike and twists what happened in a way where Mike says, oh, well, maybe my client service people are wrong. And then Mike has some kind of an agreement with this person. Then what does that say to your staff? 100%. Mike doesn't have to pick up the phone or whoever. General Mike <laughs> doesn't yeah. have to pick up the phone every time that person calls or deal with, the, well, Dr. Pownell said I could do this because you know that is just so stress inducing and really creates a lot of anxiety. Like you said, when you see that name come up, you're like, Oh my gosh, what's next. And then also, I mean, it opens up your staff to have to deal with abuse all the time, which obviously is not something that you want to do. I'm thinking instead, I mean, it'd be so helpful to have sort of an understanding with all of your staff, whether it's DVM staff or reception staff or RBTs or whatever, make sure they understand sort of what the line is. Obviously, problem solving, you're going to have to try and do that. I can still remember distinct conversations, one in particular that I had with a difficult client where I spent half an hour on the phone with them. And, you know, just even trying to figure out what their problem is can sometimes be a pickle. But at the end of the day, your staff aren't going to be able to make everybody happy. So the owner has to be prepared to make the call and has to back up the employee. And it's just so important uh, because you don't want to just leave your staff exposed. And I would say, you know what, Mickey Panel. I could count maybe on one hand the number of bad conversations that I had when I over, you know, the eight years that I was in front of the phones there, which is wonderful. But there are those people. And like you said, it's sort of increasing where people's demands are are really high and Dr. Google is getting more sophisticated and it just becomes uh, untenable for some people for sure. Well, one of the tricks I learned about three years ago with these, because I get these phone calls and it's like, you got to talk to this client. And you get on the phone with them and then you're like, oh man, this is like a he said, she said situation because they're talking about what they have seen. Your vet has told you what happened from their perspective. And by default is, uh, and I would also tell the vets, I, I'm backing you up. Yeah. No matter what happened, I, I, I like your truth. But how do you communicate that to a, a client when you're going to start off the conversation? Because you do want to get their information. There's always a kernel of truth in everything. Mm-hmm. So what I started doing the last couple of years is I'm, I'm setting up the phone call with the client, the vet, and myself. Mm-hmm. Because 
that is when I have found that the client's attitude totally changes. It's almost a safe spot for the veterinarian or receptionist, whoever it is, to be able to share their story. Mm -hmm. And usually when that person is in front of that, and it's usually a bullying client, they back off. Yeah. Because when the vet says, remember, I talked to you about this. They're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they try to dismiss this, but then they're arguing. You just see them deflating yeah, and, and deflating. That works a lot of times, but I think there are some people that are just so used to getting their way, which makes it easier to have the next step is like, you know what? We've tried our best. It didn't work for you. I think you need to find somebody else to work on your animals. For sure. Uh, so point number three, uh, the customer is always right can be bad for customer service in the long run. So like we've just been saying, if bad customers are enabled and the staff is like, well, I'm not going to get any backup from management or ownership, then eventually there's we're going to have a problem with the staff and the staff might turn against the company. This is like a where disengagement is going to happen. So in the end, trying to make the customer happy all the time in the long run is actually bad for customer service because people just start to care much less. Uh, point number four, not all customers are worth keeping. And I wrote the word assholes a lot here and I'm going to use it a lot. Maybe we'll get, do we get an E on our podcast when it comes up? If we say assholes, I don't know. No, I don't know. We say assholes, but I would never say that. Uh, so, I mean, at the end of the day, you don't have to do business with assholes. If they're unreasonable people, they don't pay on time or it's like pulling teeth to get them to pay. They're abusive. And I think a huge one in vet practices is they don't follow directions and they question everything and then they want way too much of your time and then they get PO'd when things don't work out. And then they go to the internet and they're whipping everybody up and then we don't have a mechanism to go back and say, you know, any kind of response. It's frustrating. And God forbid somebody gets the cell phone number of a veterinarian, Mm, uh, then it's game over. You can make the choice to not do business with these people. Time and resources are really valuable. Like we said before, you should be spending your time on good clients and figuring out how to help them and try and do things better for them, not for bad clients. Uh, It's just not worth it. You're not going to get anything out of it. And then he talks about this Pareto principle and where it talks about, I guess it's, I went down a whole rabbit hole about this. So it basically, the principle is that 80% of your sales come from 20% of your customers. So like you were saying, focus on those people. Though that's not to say that if you have a customer that bills a huge amount of money a year and they're an asshole, that doesn't mean you have to keep them. Uh, but I think like you're saying, we can kind of afford to be choosy right now. And it's it's so interesting whenever uh, I talk to people and it's you know not even in my professional life, but in my personal life, I have horses, I go to the barn and somebody says, well, I don't get the service that I expect. And it's pretty unreasonable re- expectations. They're like, well, I spent you know $10,000 with the veterinarian. It's like, well, that doesn't mean anything. Like, and that's maybe, especially in equine practice, it's not a lot of money <laughs> over a year. So, you know, that sort of argument, everybody should feel like they're the most important client, but it should be coming from the practice. It shouldn't be something that's spawned in their own heads. So making sure that you are really, don't give people too many chances, I guess, because they've already shown you who they are and people generally are not going to change. So yep. something yep. to think about. I mean, this goes back to university and high school dating. (laughs) People are who they are. Yeah, so true. Yeah. 
And then the last one is pretty simple. And we sort of brushed on it earlier. It's impossible to satisfy everyone. And thinking you can is a fool's errand. We might not be the practice for everybody. And we definitely are not the practice for everybody. Uh, And that's okay. We just might not jive. Like people might have different expectations. You know, there's maybe somebody had an excellent experience with their really customer service based sort of handholding type practice and they move somewhere and that's different. And they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't even have notes in my invoice or, or whatever. You can't satisfy absolutely every person. And, you know, some people don't like handholding and, and they're, they just want to be in and out. They want to pay their bill and be done. And so we don't have to be everything for everybody and we really shouldn't. I guess what we have to then is sort of develop a framework of how we identify these clients, how we tell them that we're not going to be the vets for them. And then I think also, how do we determine what are good clients? And this reminds me so much of, in one of our past podcasts, we talked about how do you uh, hire the right staff member? How do you know they're the right fit for you? Mm -hmm. And I think it's the exact same thing. This is something that we're working on in my own practice right now just to address this issue. So sort of like our client code of conduct or our preferred client type of framework. I mean, this is a you know high-level view of it, but I think as a practice, ideally, you sort of have a strategy, and you know the kind of clients that you want. And I think what we need to do and what we have done is we've asked our veterinarians, we've asked our receptionists, people that are primarily client-facing to ask them. What are the attributes of a great client? And uh, they all came back to me, and it was really comforting to know that pretty well every one of them said the same thing. Different words, same thing. Mm-hmm. And it really came back to the kind of practice we are, our values, our purpose, and it's really shared in the clients we want in terms of we want respectful clients, we want clients that we want to be part of the solution, clients that want to be educated. And that's the kind of clients that work for us. So it was really nice to see that. Okay. Here are the five attributes of a great client, let's say. All right. Can we identify uh, specific clients that don't meet these attributes and why? Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we have a list of about 10 to 15 clients over our three practices that sort of have that list. Now we're in the process of, okay, are these just such a mismatch from day one that there's just no hope for them and we've got to find a way to just say goodbye to them? Or has there been something in what we have done that we haven't really communicated what our expectations are? Do some of them, can they do a second chance or are there ways of working with them? And what we're basically going to do for the ones that the relationship is not healthy and never will be, they are who they are. We are who we are. And instead of us bending and pretzeling ourselves to accommodate them and never making them happy, I will have a discussion with them and just say, you know, uh, we're asking you to uh, find another vet. We're going to give you two weeks warning. We just find our demands are are so high for our practice uh, that we're really going to focus on the clients that really appreciate the relationship and the value of what we offer them. Mm-hmm. And I know some of them are going to say, oh, we're going to value you. We value you. You're amazing. And it's just like, you know. I don't think that's true because I've been on the phone with you too often in the past, or you've called into the office too often that obviously we're not doing the job that you want. And that's fine. There are other vets in the area and I'm sure you'll find one that does. And again, it's coming down to saying no. 
And then I think what we're working on identifying is almost, I don't know if the word code of conduct is the right word. That sort of seems very like you're reprimanding something, but it's sort of like a paragraph. And that really is all it is, is a paragraph that explains to clients, this is how we work. And in return, this is how we want our clients to interact with us. And I don't want to put this into like, you know, we're up tall and I'm, you know, all highly mighty and, you know, dictating. I just think it's, let's be upfront. What we're looking for is a clients that want to be educated, want to be involved in decision-making, understand that, yes, we understand that there often is financial limitations, but still we want people that want to do the best for their animal and we want to work with you in a respectful manner. You know, I'm sort of working on the wordsmithing of that right now. Mm-hmm. We're going to put that on our veterinary service agreement. So whenever we have a new client... There are things they need to check off and information that we need. And this will be at the very top. And what we're hoping to do is to be able to have clients that can read that and go, hmm, maybe this is not the vet for me. You know, so it's sort of like just because we can and just because you call up and say, oh, you're a vet and you have an appointment. I think we need to be a little bit more proactive in saying, hey, before we start this relationship, yeah, this is what we're all about. First of all, it's all about your animal, your pet, your horse, and this is how we act. This is what we're all about. And if somebody does uh, spend that, and I think if they're being honest with themselves, they're probably going to go, eh, that's not what I want. You know, I want a, a vet practice where I can go in and just get the bare minimum, or I like to be uh, more in control of treatment plans. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, but it's not for us. Mm-hmm. And then I think we're going to just also with that, because not everybody's going to read that. So let's, what are some different ways we can send them out, inform people? And I just, I think something as simple as an FAQ sheet, sort of like, this is what you expect. This is what we're all about. This is what will work. Highlighting that we're entering into a relationship. We don't want fly by nights. This is not a one night stand. We want a meaningful relationship centered on what's best for your pet. And, you know, some may say this is not for us. That's fine. Better to know that now <laughs> than to find out later after we've, you know, been tormented uh, by a bad relationship. Well, for sure. And it's really not all that unlike what we always talk about when we're hiring staff. Like if you're, if you drive with the culture, awesome. And if you don't, then this isn't the place for you. It's exactly the same. Yep. So, you know, I'll report on it later as it goes along, but I think this is something that a, number one is going back to where you started of reducing the workload or bringing the workload back to Manageable. more typical hours and then, you know, saying no to growth. Growth mm-hmm. will come, but uh, growth at any cost is not good for business. As an aside, as we we're preparing for this, I look through our usual sources and I like to go to academic resources because I think they've done some studying, they've done some research, and you Google as many combinations of how to fire a client, when to know when you're growing too fast. I don't think this is a question that anybody has asked or answered in, at least in the in the general uh, business academic worlds that I was looking at. In business, it's sort of like, you want to slow down growth or mm-hmm. you want to get rid of clients? Like, no, that's not what a business does. So I think this is maybe something that COVID has taught us is that maybe we do. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Usually you, you you have a subject, you can Google it. You, there, there's a lot of hits. Not all of them are good, but at least you can search and find good resources, but not on this subject. Mm-hmm. So 
going back to a more reasonable workload and being more selective in the clients, I think really are two keys to helping people realize that where they are now is where they need to be. Mm -hmm. Love it. All right. So wins and fails. I'm going to be honest. I don't have a fail. Me neither. Let's just be positive today. Getting a fail. It's just, I can go on forever. (laughs) That's true. Uh, all right. Well, I'll start with my win. Uh, speaking of workload, I love this. So sometimes I see art news articles come out and I'm like, Ooh, Mike's loving this too. So my win this week is the results of this four day work week trial in Iceland that happened. It basically took place over a long period of time between 2015 and 2019, where workers were paid the same amount for shorter hours. So a lot of the cases, Uh, It was moving from a 40-hour week to a 35-hour week, uh, and it took place mostly in the public sector in Iceland. So really, actually, about 1% of the working population, which is relatively significant as an overall percentage. So it was a range of workplaces that took part, preschools, offices, social service providers, hospitals. Uh, So lots and lots of people. And even unions like got on board, which is always insane because they don't usually like to change anything. Uh, But, you know, they renegotiated working patterns. And now 86% of the workforce that we're talking about here have moved permanently to shorter hours for the same pay, or that will be happening shortly. And it's something that sort of all of I think is making everybody in Iceland pay attention to. But I think the best part is, are the results in the workers. So workers reported feeling less stressed and less at risk of burnout, said their health and work-life balance had improved. They appreciated having more time to spend with their families, do hobbies, and complete household chores. Uh, So overall, an overwhelming success. Uh, You know, I think you, Mike, and your practice moving to the four-day work week was something that was really unheard of when you started it. Uh, in the vet industry, at least, but uh, I'm loving how it's showing that it's something that can work in the private sector, or in the, I guess, the public sector in this case, but outside of the vet, vet industry as well. So yeah, yeah, positive for sure. That's really cool. I read that article too. And, you know, and they, they referenced, I think Microsoft and Japan did this mm-hmm. with great success. And there was a company in New Zealand who did this. So Unilever. there's evidence in the mm-hmm. private sector as well. I think the big limitation on this is it's very good for, let's call it the thought workers or yeah. if you're working, if you like in retail or you have specific hours, it's, it's as veterinarians, it's hard to, you know, reduce the amount of hours that were available. So I, I think it's something that we've looked at in our practice for so long of like, how can we give our support staff a four day work week too? Mm-hmm. And so that's something that's one of those things that keeps me awake at night because I'd love to be able to do it. I, I just want to know how I can financially do it. Because mm-hmm. I know we did it with the vets, huge success, huge, huge, huge success. What do you have? So my win, and this is why I'm just, I'm sort of, uh, this is a good time of year for me is the Tour de France is on. My wife and I love the Tour de France. We don't even have to worry about what we're going to watch on Netflix or anything anymore because for, for three weeks, we're watching nothing but the Tour de France every night. And I bring this up in terms of what does this have to do with human resources is, you know, there's 20 teams in the Tour de France, 22 teams this year. The teamwork that goes on is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so when you really start to study uh, this 
And I don't know why we got into it. I mean, I don't even ride a bike outside. Like I'm a Peloton warrior. I'm on the bike that goes nowhere. I just find the intricacies, the techniques, the strategies, how the teams work together, how, how people work so well together, the stories, the drama. I think they're the hardest working athletes in the world. To do what they do over three weeks is just astronomical. One race that was on Tuesday, stage 10, one rider who's a sprinter, his role in the team is just to go really fast at the last 100 meters mm -hmm. uh, in a sprint. And this guy was 36, was considered over the hill, never thought he'd be able to be on a great team again. And their, the sprinter for the team was injured before the tour started. So they basically called him up a few weeks ahead and just said, can you, can you race with us? He had not trained for it or anything. <laughs> He has won three stages. Yeah. And he is now going to tie the all time record. And to see the emotion on him when he won his first stage of this tour was just, you know, it it's, feels weird saying this because of the legacy and history of doping in the Tour de France, but just to show the athleticism, the determination, and how the teams work together because you didn't get to the winnings uh, to win that without his team was right. just it's amazing to see. So that's my win. That's beautiful. And I think, yeah, it's the Tour de France is such a wonderful example of that team. Like they have to work together and there's really no room for ego. No. But then you have stuff like this where stuff crops up and he, you know, his, the team is still like, yeah, send it, just go. You know, yeah. if it's you, it's you. Uh, I think it's, that's really great for sure. Yeah. So anyway, well, that is our episode. Please leave a review on any of whichever podcast platform you find us. And if you have any questions, if you have a situation in your own work environment, please uh, contact us info at oculusinsights.net or anytime, anywhere online, we will make it anonymous, uh, but always like to address situations that people are going through. So until the next time, we'll talk to you later. Adios. Thank you for listening to Hire the Smile, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Our goal at Oculus is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success. This episode was produced and edited by Heather McPherson. Special thanks to Alyssa Rubenstein for doing the amazing marketing that she does for Oculus. You can see what we are up to by checking us out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and our website, oculusinsights.net. If you think you could use a business advisor or performance coach, go to advicebyoculus.com. See you next time.